And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Uh, thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and this is Finding a Voice, spoken word programming here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today, in the first hour from a January 23rd book launch event at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Gary Geddes uh, reading from his latest book, Medicine Unbundled, A Journey Through the Minefields of Indigenous Health Care. And then following that, from the January 8th, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly event, you'll hear a performance by Ron Chase. In the second hour, continuing with that January 8th and the Journey Continues event, you'll hear readings by Jean Armain, Octavian Zara, Rob Watson, David Malone, Michelle McTagg, and uh, let's see, two, Colleen Lyons and Sarah Emtige. Uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but all is played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I believe I'll have just a bit of time at the end of each hour today uh, to... Uh, share a few calls that are quickly expiring or coming up at least and uh, also a number of events that are going to happen over the course of the next uh, few days or maybe at least even a couple of weeks depending on how much time I have. Up first though, uh, from a January 23rd book launch event at Novel Idea Bookstore, you're, you'll hear Gary Geddes reading from uh, his uh, latest book, Medicine Unbundled, A Journey Through the Minefields of Indigenous Healthcare. Again, here is Gary Geddes. Oscar, do you want to say anything or should I just uh, leap into it? I have nothing to say. <laughs> Except that your name is Geddes. Geddes, yes. <laughs> I explained that it's not Geddes, but Geddes. Like lettuce and not shreddies. You know? yeah. <laughs> if you wanted me to say something, you should not. There is something rather sad about the notion of a head of lettuce. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's great to be here on the Huron-Wendat and Haudenosaunee territory, and I feel honored to be here. Also, uh, it's great to be in Kingston because I have some old friends here. One of whom is here tonight, Elizabeth Green, right there. Yeah, we, we were in graduate school together in Toronto. And... Uh, both of us end up being writers, which is, uh, is that a tribute or or something to be condemning U of T for? Well, I think it's not surprising. All, all English majors write. They just need to be encouraged to come out. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I want to talk to you about Medicine Unbundled. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange journey I've been through for the last decade for the first five years of, of the last decade, I was doing research into human rights abuses and trauma in Africa for a book called Drink the Bitter Root, A Search for Justice and Healing in Africa. And it was ex exhausting. It was really painful uh, to hear the stories that were being told there. And so I decided as I was trying to write this book and 
figure out how, how how do you take painful information like that and share it with people without them the eyes glazing over from overkill or from or running out looking for a razor blade and uh, it's a line of Jean-Paul Sartre came to my mind he said uh, no matter how terrible the material you have to present it with an essential lightness <coughs> it was such a great statement but it was also a real challenge to, to try to figure out how to do that and so uh, in the process of trying to write that book I decided I needed, needed a break so I, my daughter had just started working for Indian Affairs and she said well let's go to the TRC Commission hearings in Victoria and uh, I it turned out to be quite different. It was a bit of what they call a busman's holiday. It was <clears throat> more of the same of what I was doing. I got there, and <clears throat> the first person I heard speaking was Joan Morris, and she is a Songhees elder, a very persuasive and dynamic uh, woman who had one, only one vocal cord, so her voice was tiny, but her message was anything but tiny. <clears throat> and she said, to this large audience at the Empress Hotel, and that's an, an example of indigenous humor, mm -hmm. having their TRC hearings at something called the Empress Hotel. <laughs> uh, <coughs> she said, my mother was taken to the Nanaimo Indian Hospital, a segregated hospital at age, seven, uh, age 18. She was there for 35 years, or for, for till she was 35, 17 years. And I just was flabbergasted to try to imagine what could have been happening in a hospital for 17 years like that. And uh, <clears throat> at lunchtime, Bronwyn and I went over to the old Crystal Gardens in Victoria where they were serving lunch. And Joan was sitting there with some friends, so we asked if we could join her. And uh, so she asked Bronwyn what she did. And when she found out my daughter was working for Indian Affairs, she was very curious about it because most Native people know that Indian Affairs has been the major source of their problems <laughs> for a hundred years now or more. And then she asked me what I was doing and I made the fatal mistake of mentioning I was a writer. And Her eyes grew large and disbelieving and she leaned across the table and said, have I got a story for you? <laughs> and my, my fate was sealed. I did not want to go from African atrocities to, <clears throat> I thought I'd seen everything in Africa, but I had a lot to learn when I got working on indigenous health issues. So Joan basically mentored me and uh, uh, it was uh, quite a challenge for both of us. I sent out, I thought, you know, I'm an academic, I can do this book in a couple of years, I do all the research and writing and I sent a hundred emails out to band councils, didn't get a single reply. And uh, I said to Joan, Joan, what am I doing wrong? She said, well, where do you want me to start? <laughs> she said, you know, Gary, the trouble I have with white people is they don't know how to listen. And this was a, a phrase that was repeated quite often in my relationship with Joan Morris. and. Uh, uh, so anyway, wh what happened was I had to slow down. I couldn't do a fast book. I had to, you know, all those band council 
emails were followed by phone, phone calls and I had lovely chats with people in the tribal council but nothing happened. So Joan introduced me to somebody and uh, a friend or a family member and if they trusted me they would mention me to somebody else. And it was slow as hell and frustrating but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because instead of essentially seeing these folks as sources of information, I had to become friends with them. And I have so many friends across the country now. Two of them I just uh, visited in Ottawa, two Algonquin folks, Annie Smith Saint-Georges and Robert Saint-Georges. And uh, uh, it wouldn't have happened, I think, if I had been doing sort of conventional reportage or interviewing. So I, I had to well, what I learned basically and, and quickly was that uh, word of mouth is the only way to conduct that kind of research because you, it's the only way to establish the kind of trust that makes the sharing of stories possible. And so my contacts were f fairly localized in British Columbia and then I started talking to people I knew in cities across the country who had indigenous friends. And that's how uh, it began to expand into from the Nanaimo Indian Hospital to the Charles Campbell in Edmonton, then hospitals in Saskatchewan and Winnipeg and, and, and farther as far east as Montreal. I didn't, didn't have a chance to do that kind of research in the Maritimes. But there was a, <coughs> a moment when the African research and the uh, indigenous research came together. I was just about finished the Drink the Bitter Root and when I started this this research and I had learned something really significant with one of the interviews when I was trying to figure out how to write that book and do what Sartre suggested, find a balance between the painful and the, the more humorous or lighter. I remembered an interview with a woman named Nancy she spoke no English, but she had an English name. Uh, this is another uh, residue of colonialism. Uh, <coughs> so I was speaking with her through a, 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 an interpreter in a little town in northern Uganda called Gulu. We were in the compound of a, of a hospital. And the woman sitting in front of me had no ears, lips, or nose. They'd been cut off by the Lord's Resistance Army. They stuffed them in her hand and said, give these to the Ugandan Army. And they'd killed all of her friends. And this coming information's coming to me through the interpreter. And I had to keep my eyes on, Nan uh, on uh, Nancy's ravaged face because to take them off would have seemed an insult. And it, it was, I was feeling this anger building up in me, like a feeling that you know, Joseph Coney, the head of the Lord's Resistance Army, I was thinking, Joseph, a bullet is too good for you. You need to suffer slowly. And so finally it just this anger burst out and I said, Nancy, what should be done to these people who've mutilated you and killed your friends? She said they should be restored to the community they were only abducted boys. So you can imagine my shock. Uh, here I'm sitting there indulging my desire for revenge back to my reptilian brain uh, and wanting uh, 
some revenge and retribution on, Na on Nancy's behalf. And I'm only the listener, and she's the victim, and she's counseling forgiveness and restoration. So it, it, was, it was quite a shock, and uh, she was not only able to put her feet in the shoes of these abducted boys who'd been turned into little killing machines. She was able to keep her eyes on me and she could see what an emotional mess I was during that, that interview, so-called interview. And uh, so she changed the subject. She said, Gary, your name is like the Acholi word for bicycle. <laughs> I said, Nancy, I'm so glad to be mistaken for an Acholi bicycle because the name Gary in Japanese is the word for diarrhea. <laughs> anyway, uh, so she taught me, and, and that was the moment when I knew how to write Drink the Bitter Root, because I had this terrible story and I had the lightness and integrity and beauty of this woman who had, had so much more ethical awareness than I had. And so it, it came with me as a gift from Africa that helped me with my work with indigenous people. There were, there were a lot of moments when my lack of protocol and good sense made me the uh, butt of indigenous humor. It was, uh, and there was plenty of those moments, uh, one of which took place up in the White, in White Horse. My wife and I, in order to afford to do these interviews, we prostituted ourselves as writers by writing to people and saying, can you invite us to do a reading? She's a novelist and I'm a poet, so people would invite us and then I would use most of the time for interviewing elders wherever I went. And so we had a moments, few moments off during this trip and we went into the Kwanlun Dunn Cultural Center in Whitehorse, a beautiful new cultural center right along the Yukon River. And the young indigenous woman was uh, taking this group of about a half a dozen people around explaining the artifacts. And my eyes fell upon a, uh, that's not a good phrase, uh, <laughs> your eyes don't fall upon anything. Uh, anyway, my eyes uh, found this beautiful little rowboat that had been handmade, and it, uh, I'm a boat nut, so I got looking at this rowboat, and uh, I asked the young woman a question that I knew was absolutely stupid as the word last word dropped out of my mouth. I said, do people in the north here use steam to bend the wood? Well, as far as I've learned, there's only two ways to bend wood, and that's steam or hot water. And uh, she knew that, of course. She looked at me, and uh, there was a, a, a sort of awkward pause, and then a little smile appeared on her lips, and she talked to me. She said this as if she was talking to a two-year-old. She said, you have to talk to the wood to make it bend. <laughs> it was a new mantra for me, like Joan's comment about uh, learning to listen, uh, because, you know, it, it was clear she was making fun of me, but it was also clear, as Joan said, start listening for the sub subtext, start figuring out what's behind people, what people are saying, give them credit for more than a sort of superficial comment. 
And for me, it was as if she was saying, we've been talking to you guys for 200 years. It's time that you started to bend a little bit. And so that was one of the, the countless moments where indigenous humor uh, taught me so much. Told me not to take myself too seriously. That's, that, that was certainly uh, a good feature of that. Let me bounce out for a moment and talk a bit about the, the, the way this book has been received. Uh, it sold 3,600 copies already, and uh, all the money earned from the book is going to an Indigenous fellowship at the University of Victoria for an Indigenous student. But the, as I set out to promote the book, got a phone call from the publicist, Leslie Kenny at Heritage House, and she said, Gary, we got rid of 1,100 books today. And I, d I didn't question the use of, rather in indelicate use of that phrase, got rid of, to describe the sale of a, an important book. I, said, I, I responded equally bad, badly by saying, wow. <laughs> she said, don't get too excited. They burned to a crisp in the back of the delivery truck. <laughs> taking them from Winnipeg's printer to the distributor in Toronto. Well, I couldn't resist the opportunity. I said, well, I warned you this was a hot property. <laughs> <laughs> I also said, uh, unforgivably, maybe we could get some mileage out of this, uh, you know, uppercase letters. <coughs> Exciting new book goes into second printing after only two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I don't take much uh, credit for the success of this book. Uh, much of it goes, most of it goes to Joan Morris and to the Songhees elders who, who trusted, trusted me enough to share their stories. So off I set uh, on my new journey. And uh, what I learned, first of all, was that the segregated Indian hospitals were not set up to help indigenous people. They were basically set up to keep indigenous people separate from a racist white society. And uh, as such, they were chronically underfunded, and with some uh, notable exceptions, they were poorly staffed. And I'll mention one of those. Ex 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 exceptional uh, pr people who did not fall into that category al along the way. They were responsible for gratuitous drug and surgical experiments. They were responsible for uh, forced sterilizations. And in some smaller number of cases, they were responsible for electric shock treatment to destroy the short-term memory of sexual abuse. And uh, John A. MacDonald bragged to Parliament that he could handle the health care costs of Indigenous people for half the price of the rest of us. And he also bragged to Parliament that he was keeping the Plains Indians at starvation level uh, to save money. So the policies brought the, the great chiefs Poundmaker and others to their knees begging for food on the prairies. These uh, brilliant uh, warriors and spokespeople were, were brought to their knees because of that kind of systemic racism, which is still with us in, in a lot of ways. 
So I'm tooting, tooting along uh, doing a chapter uh, on forced sterilizations and I'm particularly looking at the Sterilization Act of Alberta which came out in 1929 and followed by British Columbia like good little puppy dogs in 32. Uh, this allowed people to be sterilized and hospitalized by at, at the doctor's recommendation. And uh, as I was doing that, well, I, sh I should just tell you a statistic first. Uh, at that point, indigenous people were 2.3% of our population, and they were 25% of those sterilized through the uh, act. And uh, the same kind of disproportionate statistics are with us now. 50% of the prison population for women in the prairies is, uh, is indigenous. And it's about 30 to 40 percent men in the prison correction system. So that disproportionate kind of stuff is still happening. So I was doing the work on that chapter and trying to figure out what to say in that chapter, and I got an email from a woman named Yvonne Boyer, a Métis nurse. She had been a Métis nurse, and she went on to do a law degree. She, when I met her, she was chair of Indigenous Health and Well-Being at the University of Brandon, the Prairies, Manitoba. So she, she, there was one line in the email. It said, Gary, it's still happening. And then there was a hot link for me to go to, and it was an article from the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, where a woman named Brenda Pelletier had been bullied by the doctors and nurses into signing a, a sterilization agreement. She was pregnant, and they were encouraging her not to have any more children. She had been a young woman with a lot of baggage and had ended up with her first two children in the care of her grandmother. And she had got her act together again and was pregnant and was looking forward to having a couple of kids starting her career as a mother again. and But these people thought they knew better for her, and so she signed this document. On the, op on the delivery table, she said, I've changed my mind. I can't go through with this. And they said, well, it's too bad you've signed the paper. You have to go through with it now. Besides, they said, it can always be reversed. She woke up with the smell of her own flesh cauterized, and she knew it wouldn't be reversed. And uh, so, it—that's uh, the—that's the kind of stuff that's that's been going on. You'd be glad to know that a lawsuit has been brought against the Saskatoon Hospital for uh, their involuntary or, or forced, encouraged sterilizations, and a uh, and a. Uh, a larger lawsuit has been brought against the Canadian government for the segregated Indian hospitals. Mm. I think there are a number of writers who've been working in this field that are really important. Uh, Maureen Lux from the University of Trent, I think. Trent or Brock? I'm, I think it was Brock. Uh, she wrote a book called Medicine That Walks about the treatment of the Plains Indians. And then uh, James Daschuk has written a book uh, about about the prairies as well. And I'm trying to remember 
title has just slipped my mind. Clearing the Plains. Clearing the Plains. Clearing the Plains. Maury, uh, uh, Marilyn, uh, <laughs> yes, Helen Kelm at the University of Simon Fraser has written a book called Ab uh, Aboriginal Bodies something like that. And it's they're all really important pieces of writing if you're doing any research in these areas. Uh, and I like to I like to give them some tribute as well. Maureen's latest book, which is probably the most important, was published just after this book went to the uh, publisher and it's it's a really interesting book. It's called Separate Beds. Uh, I encourage you to have a look at that. It uh, She's an academic, a brilliant academic, and I, when I heard that this book was coming, my heart sunk. <laughs> I thought, what's my little book going to, you know, what's it going to contribute when it's going to have to be there alongside uh, Maureen Lux's book? So I sent it to Maureen, and I said, uh, what do you think of this book? Should I go ahead with it? And she wrote back, and she wrote some beautiful comments about it. And she said, I can't, as an academic, do the kind of research you've been doing, inter interviewing. I need to have harder in hard information that has uh, more attachment to documents. And so she had gone through all of the uh, correspondence and government documents relating to health issues that she could find, and she's written this brilliant book. So she said our books will be complementing one another, and she had the grace to write a blurb for the back of the book for me, which was better than I deserved. Anyway, it was a lovely, a lovely thing to happen. My friend Joan Morris, to get back to where we started, went to the Nanaimo Indian Hospital while her mom was a patient there. Uh, she was taken in at age two. All her toes were broken. She discovered later from a doctor she'd had these problems with her feet. And the doctor said, how did your toes get broken? And it must have happened when she was in the hospital. She was strapped to a crib. She was subjected to long needles uh, for unknown, we don't know what was pumped into her system during that time. And uh, it was pretty clear that there were drug experiments going on constantly. Her friend Belvy Thomas uh, from the Cowichan tribe in Duncan was there as a, a patient at the Nanaimo Indian Hospital. She was a feisty kid. One of the nurses decided to break her spirit by keeping her in the, uh, uh, locked up in a closet for an entire day. Uh, they kept her in, they didn't want children to move around. They didn't want to have trouble with kids, looking after kids basically, so they put them in body casts with just enough absent plaster that you could pee and, and so on. And she was sexually abused with that body cast on. So the stories are, are legion. Mary Murray Allison, a Gwich'in a, a woman from the Northwest Territories, remembers almost dying of loneliness in the hospital uh, until one, one nurse took pity on her and took her up to the other ward so she could see her mother in a bed through a glass partition. Uh, Linda McDonald from uh, Watson Lake was part of the Laird First Nation. She remembers being 
carried by her mother who was weeping along the lake to a float plane and put on this float plane with complete strangers, flown to Edmonton and uh, the next memory she has is of being stripped by a nurse and forced into a cold shower. She'd never heard of showers before and she started to cry and the nurse banged her head and told her to shut up. She said, I was in that hospital from age three to age five. She said, I went in like a, a, a little Indian girl. I came out a little white girl. Joan's uncle Ivan was left for dead in the morgue after a lung operation that re removed a number of his ribs. And his brother was also a patient in the hospital at that time, went looking for him, uh, for Ivan. And Sandy found his brother down in the morgue. He goes to the morgue and he, he looks and he sees this gurney with a body on it and a couple of familiar feet sticking out one end. So he goes over to check to see if this is really his brother and he pulls he covers the feet up and so his brother's face is, is visible so he bends over to give his brother a kiss and he feels this faint breath on his face and he just jumps back he, he wants to shout but he's afraid he's going to scare his brother to death and he runs upstairs and he says to the orderly my brother's alive my brother's alive and they push him around and bully him and, they, and then they say if you want your brother so badly bring him up yourself so those are a few of the kinds of things that, that uh, I was learning along the way and having one hell of a time trying to process. I asked, uh, I'm, I'm often asked by people why I'm writing, why I wrote this book, why I spent four years writing it and another year trying to promote it. I've done 51 talks about this book in Canada and the, and, and the UK. And they say, you know, this stuff happened a long time ago. It's, it's old news. Well, there are lots of questions about the impact of trauma on our genetic code. We call it epigenetics now, and it's becoming a pretty common belief that trauma impacts the DNA it adds another something to it, and so that we end up with uh, that trauma, with being born with some of, the, some of that trauma. So I, I, I say to people who ask me this, I say, well, if, if it's all in the past, how was it possible in 2009 for Brian Sinclair to wheel himself in a wheelchair into the emergency ward in a hospital in Winnipeg and to be found dead in that wheelchair 34 hours later with a kidney infection that could have been treated with antibiotics. Well, I call it manslaughter or murder, uh, but it's also something that might be called psychosocial triage. It means when a nurse, a doctor, or a receptionist takes a look at somebody coming in and decides, based on a lot of stereotypes, that this person doesn't need attention. And I don't need to list all the stereotypes people have of indigenous people, especially people that are down and out. So it, it, it's, a, 
it's it's a it's a painful painful history that whole thing. Biological warfare was used, ethnic cleansing was used, and even smallpox blankets. Uh, it appears it appears to be one of the difficult and and most powerful kinds of images that people don't want to address. And, and we know General Amherst was implicated in the use of uh, smallpox blankets in the U.S., the British general. Uh, but nobody wants to think that anything like this could happen in Canada. And I was one of those people that didn't want to think like that anything like this could happen. But Tom Swanky, as a lawyer, has just brought out a book a couple of years ago called Canada's War of Extermination in the Pacific. And he traces the smallpox epidemic to the arrival in from California with some people with smallpox on board the ships to Victoria on the route to the gold rush. And it appears from his research that Douglas took advantage of that and he infected a number of people with the kind of vaccine that, that would make you infectious but you wouldn't die. It meant that anybody who got in touch with you would die but you wouldn't die. So a group was sent up from Bella Coola up towards the, the trail towards the gold fields and two of them were dropped off at every village and everybody died in those villages. And at some point the chief five chiefs discovered what was happening and they decided that they would stand up and fight and they killed several white people. Uh, there was a huge kerfuffle. Uh, they were eventually tricked into coming down to Victoria uh, for a trial to discuss all of this. They thought that it was going to be resolved through discussion. And when they got there, they were tried and hung, five of them. Now, I don't know whether, I have no idea whether this version of what happened by Tom Swanky is accurate, but I have a feeling it, it probably is because the Douglas administration was, uh, had an anal fixation. They were very meticulous about every detail. And the only two years that there are no records whatsoever are the two years of the epidemic. And so did, you don't know whether the Douglas administration removed those, eliminated those records, or whether later governments fearing litigation did the same thing, or did it instead. So what do we have to do? I think we have to change the national narrative. Canada is not the peacekeeping nation, number one destination of the wretched of the earth. Uh, it's the source of some of the greatest wretchedness at the moment, and still polluted water, inadequate housing, missing murdered and aboriginal women. We murdered, we actually exterminated the Biotic Indians in Newfoundland by driving them from the coast and their food supplies. The, the remainder were shot. The last one was Shauna Dithit. She was kept as a museum piece in Newfoundland and died of tuber tuberculosis. Uh, when General Cornwallis put a, put a, uh, a price on scalps for Mi'kmaq people, 
the number of Micmac on contact was 200,000. One century later, there were 20,000. And in this century, there were 2,000. So that gives you an idea that we can't be self-righteous anymore and pretend we're any different from the Spanish and the Americans and all that's been going on with indigenous populations. And we can't hang on Lester B. Pearson's Nobel Peace Prize anymore and call ourselves the number one peacekeepers of the world. We're, we're the number one bullies in, in, in a number of senses. Doesn't mean I don't love this country. It means that I love it enough to try to tell the truth and come to terms with it myself. I, I like a quotation from Herschel Hardin, a political scientist and playwright from Simon Fraser University, who published a book in 1958, a long time ago, called A Nation Unaware. And it's a brilliant book. I encourage you to look at it. It's mostly about French-English relations, but the comment that is so relevant here is that... Uh, oh, dear. How does, it, how, does it, how does it go? Creating a simulacrum of innocence is only a way that colonials have of avoiding their condition. It pretty much covers, covers the ground. And I agree with him, and I agree with... Carl Jung that maturity is only possible in the individual or in the society by acknowledging and coming to terms with our dark side. And we definitely have a dark side that needs to be addressed in this country. Is that about it, uh, Oscar? I've got a couple more things. Uh, maybe I'll just give you a couple of the lighter moments here. Um, <laughs> when I was in Whitehorse, I also met Roger Ellis. He was a friend of uh, Linda McDonald's, and uh, we had dinner in a restaurant called the Ribbon Steak, and it was a sort of Quonset hut. It had started its history in Whitehorse as a coffin factory, and it ended up mm -hmm. being one of the best restaurants in the Yukon. Anyway, he said, you know, I was struck by lightning twice within seconds, and my insides were starting to, to melt. And they took, sent me by plane to Edmonton, and I woke up in this bed. There were five, I could hear doctors talking, there were five of them, and uh, said they, they were all dressed in white. I didn't know whether I was in heaven or, or <laughs> what. He said, but the, the gist of what they were saying was this guy's toast. How long do you think he's going to last? So he said, I managed to get enough strength to get up on one elbow. And I said, shit, you guys are supposed to know what you're doing. Get me somebody who does. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, they called in Dr. Romanowski. And Romanowski stuck needles in him and drained off all the poisons. He said, I looked like a colander. <laughs> and he said, so a few years later, I went back to the Charles Campbell Hospital in Edmonton and I said, I'd like to speak to Dr. Uh, Romanowski. The woman hardly looked at him, just noticed he was an indigenous person and said, he's not in, he's work. I mean, he's busy, he's busy. So Roger sat down, came back 10 minutes later. Could you call Dr. Romanowski for me? And she said, no, he's on rounds now. And she hadn't checked anything at all. So after two or three more times like this, he realized that he was never going to see Dr. Romanowski, so he said, 
let me tell you something. I'm going to be here all day. I'm going to make such a nuisance of myself, and I'm going to, uh, you know, create total havoc here. If you don't call Dr. Romanowski and at least tell him that Roger Moore, Roger, uh, Roger Ellis is here, I'm going to give you a really rough time. Well, she could have called security, I suppose, but she did call Dr. Romanowski. She put down the phone. She started calling Roger, sir. <laughs> and the elevator door opened. Dr. Romanowski came out, and when he had one look at, at Roger, he burst into tears, and they just had a huge hug. And, uh, so the, there were some good things happening, but it's an important story, and it really needs to be told, and I just hope that you'll share this information with people that you, you meet along the way. So I'm, I'm open to some questions, if we have time for that. Or comments like, hey, don't quit your day job, that sort of thing. <coughs> Any questions? It's being struck dumb. <laughs> yes. I, I am. Um, so Gary, I don't know if it's before. I, I read your book. I think I, I was CBC's always on at our house, and I was listening to something, and I remember just being in the kitchen and hearing this story, and my heart just sort of fell into the floor because I thought, what, what else are we going, what else don't I know, and what else are we going to have to learn about? What else am I going to hear about? Because I, I don't know who uh, it was, um, but there was a somebody was talking about segregated Indian hospitals. And here I am thinking that I'm making a real effort to learn and read and, and, and try to find things out and know things. And somebody's talking about this whole other element that I, ha I had no idea about. And then it was this, you know, the summer after that I just, just happened to stare at the cover of, the, of your book and, and, and read it. And it's just... Um, I'm so glad that, that it is out there because it's a whole other side of the story that I had no idea of when I, when I considered myself somewhat informed or trying to become informed. Well, thank you for sharing that. Ange is responsible for me be, being here because she met Joan Morris in the bookstore. Joan was in there making sure they had copies of this book and they had a discussion about, about that. And, uh, uh, it, it's 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 great to be here. It's been a challenge for me. It was a, it still is a challenge. Talking about it is hard to, hard to do. And uh, it's people ask, you know, what can I do personally? And I say, mm -hmm. you That's have one to. Of my questions. You have what to. Can we do? You have to come to terms with that yourself, because I can't offer those answers. But uh, and you, not everybody can spend four years or five years the way I have trying to find out these answers, uh, but a good start would be to read all the 94 recommendations of the Truth mm -hmm. and Reconciliation Commission hearings, and that wouldn't take you more than a couple of hours thinking mm -hmm. about them. And they have all sorts of good suggestions for that kind of thing. The government said when they came in that they would really work at following those recommendations themselves. and. Uh, a little bit is happening, but not nearly as much as we'd hoped for. 
Well, thank you. There's some wonderful food that's been put up here. Uh, and I hope that you'll enjoy that. And I'm happy to ch just chat and form them. Totally. We're actually open till nine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, well, another hour. And there is some wine and water back here if anybody wants some. So please help yourselves. Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to clap. Yeah, it's a hard thing to clap. <laughs> <laughs> and you just heard from... Uh, the from a January 23rd a book launch event at Novel Idea Bookstore, Gary Geddes reading from his latest book, Medicine Unbundled, A Journey Through the Minefields of Indigenous Healthcare. Tell you what, let's do this and I will be right back. The Four Directions Aboriginal Student Center, located at 146 Berry Street, offers resources and services for Aboriginal students at Queen's University. Among its many services, the Center offers a Three Sisters Feast Weekly on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Center, prepared by staff or a guest chef. The Center is open daily, Monday to Friday, and hosts events throughout the year. For more information, visit queensu.ca slash fdasc. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Walk Home is one of the services provided to you by the Alma Mater Society at Queen's University. Walk Home is a completely confidential and anonymous service where students will pick you up and walk you to any location within our extensive boundaries. We are located in the Lower Cayley of the John Deutsch University Centre. You can request the walk by dropping by the kiosk or by calling 613-533-9255 during our hours of operation. We are open every night from dusk till 2am, Sunday to Wednesday, or till 3am from Thursday to Saturday. During exam season, we are open until 4am. Last year, we completed over 10,000 walks, walking the equivalent distance of crossing the width of Canada and back. So whether you're feeling unsafe, want someone to walk with after a night at the library, or if you're more comfortable walking downtown with someone, call Walk Home. If you have any questions about the service, please feel free to contact us by calling 613-533-9255 or by emailing walkhome at ams.queensview.ca. Stefan Andrusiak. The program is called Nasha Kasha. Thursday mornings at 11.30 on CFRC 101.9 FM right here in Kingston. In Slavic and Jewish cuisine, kasha is any grain boiled in water or milk. Kasha is warm, nourishing, and just a little bit messy, not unlike life itself. The show is about Canadian roots, which, in my case, are Ukrainian. Nasha Kasha travels to bring you stories about everyday lives lived remarkably. 
Nasha Kasha, a Ukrainian almanac. Happy to be a part of the menu on CFRC 101.9 FM, listener-supported, campus-based community radio in Kingston. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And tell you what, let's move now into and... uh, just open it up. We're going to begin readings and performances uh, from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic uh, reading series, a monthly event. Uh, and uh, up first, here is you can hear a performance actually uh, by Ron Chase. First, let's bring up Ron Chase. So uh, I'm just going to do a couple short covers tonight. If today was not an endless highway, if tonight was not a crooked trail, if tomorrow wasn't such a long time, lonesome would mean nothing to me at all. And only if my own true love was waiting And I could hear her heart softly pounding Only if she was lying by me Would I lie in my bed once again I can't see my reflection in the water can't speak a sound that shows no pain. I can't hear the echoes of my footsteps or remember the sound of my own name. And only if my own true love was waiting, and I could hear her heart a softly pounding. There's beauty in that silver singing river There's beauty in that sunset in the sky None of these and nothing else could touch the beauty That I remember in my true love's eye Only if my own true love was waiting And I could hear her heart softly pounding There's a bottle 
On the dresser by your things And it's empty Right now I don't feel a thing I'll be hurting When I wake up on the floor I'll be over it By now That's the difference Between whiskey and you Come tomorrow I can walk in any store It's not a problem They'll always sell me more But your love, darling it's something I can't buy There ain't a thing that I can do That's the difference between whiskey and you Give him another hand. And the next one, I'm not blaming you, right? And kind of cut myself off there. But anyway, you just heard Ron Chase from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. I do have uh, now uh, a few minutes here to share. Uh, uh, some calls for submissions and some upcoming events. Uh, don't know if we'll get to the events yet, but try to get through some of the calls for submissions. And guess before I do that, though, I want to say I want to thank you for staying tuned to uh, tuning into the first hour of the show. And I hope you can stay tuned to the second hour and hear poetry from the first few poets in that same uh, January eighth open mic uh, that Ron opened up that evening. And I do want to thank you for having tuned in. So 
You've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC. My name is Bruce here every Friday from 4 to 6 o'clock. And uh, we do stream live online as well, www.cfrc.ca. Okay, let's go ahead and pull up this sheet, and we'll do this right up to the top of the hour, and then we'll begin with more from that open mic. Uh, there is a, it's a call for participation. It's from uh, Viva Voce. It's a storytelling event, and it's there saying call, uh, calling all storytellers. Uh, uh, we want to present you with Viva Voce. Uh, Wonders is their theme, and uh, that's produced by Blue Canoe Theatrical Productions. Uh, the event will take place on March 28th. Uh, but uh, there is a March 9th, so that's still a week away, but not that far the way it's March already, for crying out loud. So uh, their uh, Facebook notice says that uh, the call is open, the application deadline's open until 6 p.m. on March 9th. I'd suggest you either go to... Uh, you can email Viva Voce, that's V-I-V-A-V-O-C-E dot Y-G-K at gmail.com if you have any, uh, any uh, questions or want to contact the curators there. Uh, you can find more information on Viva Voce at www.bluecanoetheatrical.com slash Viva Voce would take you to more information about it. There's also a Facebook page, so just uh, you know what you need to do. Uh, go to Viva Voce Wonders, and I'm sure it'll take you right to the page. There's another call for submissions uh, that is also uh, ending on March 9th at midnight. Uh, that is, the Union Gallery is accepting uh, submissions of short student films uh, of any genre and topic. And uh, they have guidelines here. It needs to be less than 10 minutes. Uh, collaborations are welcome, they say. Uh, there are guidelines here. And you know what? I'm just going to give you their website. Uh, you can find more information. In fact, yeah. UnionGallery.QueensU.ca, and they will have everything you need there. You need to know about it. Uh, the screening will occur on March 20th, so there is, again, the March 9th deadline to get that in. And there's another one that just opened up. Well, we have a brand new this year, Kingston Poet Laureate, uh, Jason Haru. And he is offering, through the Kingston uh, Frontenac Public Library Mentorship, or a Kingston Frontenac Library Mentorship opportunity, looking for six emerging or practicing poets aged 14 or older who are interested in hour-long one-on-one mentorship sessions in April with him. So uh, there are uh, some dates coming up. Uh, most of the the mentorship dates are in April. All that information, I'm just going to go ahead and give you uh, the website. It's, in fact, it says, uh, more information, please contact Ann Hall. And she's at the Kingston Front Act Public Library. And that number is 613-549-8888, extension 3528. And again, that number is 613 613- Five four nine eight 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 extension three five two eight or online 
ahall at kfpl.ca. So you can email her there. And uh, there's another call coming up, but it's uh, it's uh, March 13th, Freelit Magazine. Uh, check out their website, www.freelitmagazine.com. Uh, they're looking for poetry, prose, photography, or visual art. And I actually made it through all the calls. I didn't think I'd do that, or all the ones that are quickly approaching. So there you go. Hopefully that was helpful. And it is now a few seconds after 5 o'clock. So welcome back into the second hour of today's show. And uh, you are listening again to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located again in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. So coming up in this hour, we're going to continue with that January 8th and the Journey Continues event. Uh, you're going to hear readings from it. Uh, in fact, I think, yeah, the way I've got it lined up, they are, these are in total the first eight, so you're going to hear seven this hour. Uh, readings by Jean Armaine. Octavian Zara, Rob Watson, David Malone, Michelle McTagg, Colleen Lyons, and Sarah Emtish. This first, though, uh, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So again, uh, I believe I will have a couple of minutes at the end of the hour to share a few more calls, or I guess I'm going into the events next, so hopefully I can share some. There are a bunch coming up this week, so it'll be quick, but I'll try to get as many in as I can. Okay. Again, continuing with the January 8th, and the journey continues reading in that monthly event up first here is Jean R. Maine and I'm blaming my eyes but I think it's Jean R. Maine is that right? No, it's John R. Maine. John R. Maine. <laughs> Sorry about that. John, yeah. let's bring him up. John R. Maine. Pardon me, but I'm a little shaky because I whacked my head to the storm. Somebody's dry away. Suffering from a concussion. Oh, no. I'm here because I care about our school. How to get the tenor band to keep coming back? Great. I'll fix that for you. You gotta pretty much kiss the mic. Okay. So you know. This is something that uh, I started writing more serious poems. I've been writing almost my whole life. But I wrote this. Uh, the first uh, muse that I shot with in San Francisco. And I, uh, my sister bugged me for years to take art, and I went to take art lessons while I was full. So I decided I'd go and shoot pictures and then paint from them. And this is what I wrote for her. I do not seek to seal your soul. Just to blow it for a while. I promise. I'll return it whole with all its grace and all its style. You call yourself a fake dancer. I call you more of a soul enhancer. The dancer lives deep within your soul and shows us all that what we should know. You cannot appreciate the artist by himself while leaving an opposing artist on the shelf. Without life models such as you can, there would be no art. Yes. 
Okay, this is one I wrote for, I, all these poems pretty much are all written for muses. I've got lots of others, and maybe one day you'll hear them, but not tonight. This is Muses Night. So this one uh, was just, it's pretty simple, but it really speaks to how I felt about this muse. Your beauty, your art, your soul, your heart. You are what drives my artist's brush. You are what makes others hush. You are shown on gallery walls. You are hot and great walls. You do what others cannot do. You are a muse. You seem to think that you are made of clay, but you are spun from the finest gold. You have some issues with your shape. I think you're a beauty to behold. There are things about you that put exquisite, sorry. There's a fineness to you that no one else can best. There are things about you that put exquisite to the test. I tell you now, from the very depths of my heart's heart, it is not the nude of you, but the hue of you that makes you the finest art. I think that's what I can do for tonight, guys. Sorry, I'm so emotional. Thank you. That was John R. Main. Let's give him another hand. And you just heard John R. Main from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next from it, here is Octavian Zara. Up next, Octavian Zara. Let's bring him up. He's good? Anyone can hear me? Hi. So hi. My first time doing this, so... I'll do my best. The lights were dim, the music loud. I couldn't find you, but you came around. Wow. I dropped my jaw straight through the ground. You dressed in wine. The deep red kind, your lips, your hips, you were so well defined. I smiled, the best I could. I mean, what else could I have done? You were so beautiful, I wondered how much time you spent doing your hair, how patient you were putting your makeup on. Lines so perfect, surgeon's hands, you must have. You're a masterpiece, and I'm lucky enough to be able to gaze at you for free. I snapped out of it because I was scared. Scared someone else would see you and swoop in and take you away. Anyone here tonight would be the luckiest man alive to have you hold on to his arm. I gently took your hand in mine, pulled you close, just in time. A slow melody just made its debut, and I wanted no one else but you. You slowly stepped inside my world. You placed your hand up on my shoulder and looked straight into my eyes. And on that beat, we took to the skies. You spun like a leaf caught in the wind, your dress on fire with every spin. Your smile put to shame the devil's grin. You never failed in my arms to come back in. Your perfume lingers on me still. Time, a lost concept under your spell. We are rocking back and forth when you placed your hands behind my neck. Your gentle gaze, my heart, train wrecked. You had eyes for no one else. I was yours and you were mine. And to that, there's no perfect rhyme. I felt at peace you were playing gently with my hair once we got tired and grabbed a chair. I put my jacket on your shoulders, grabbed your waist, and pulled you closer. By now, tired, your head was resting on me. 
and I knew it wasn't long before you'd fall asleep. So silently we slipped away. Without you, this would have been just like any other day. I'm so, I'm so glad you came tonight. It was magical, and you were the magic. You're an angel, you're unique. And I hope, you, I hope to find you one day soon. I hope we can spend hours dancing in my room. I wish to hear nothing but your voice every day. Listen to, listen to every single word you say. I hope to feel you holding on, and one day about you to write a song. I wish you happiness wherever you are right now. One day we'll find us. This one I wrote like ages ago. This is for the dates we won't go on, for all the times we will not kiss, for all the nights we'll spend alone, wondering where we went wrong, for all the feelings we hid behind buildings and walls made out of pride, for all the times we were apart, somewhere away where hearts collide. This is from the bottom of my soul, from the silence where I was born. This is about the fire in your eyes, about the desire you cannot disguise about the words I should have said every morning and before going to bed. For all the dreams I've had of you, in which our lives were a lighter shade of blue. This is mostly because we haven't met, because our steps are not in sync, I bet. Because the time zone is not the same, because I've got so many things I want to blame. For the loneliness I've had to tend, and for my heart which I cannot mend, and for the storm inside my head, and the chaos that I've bled. Thank you very much. I was on Katie and Jarlar. Give them another hand. And that was Octavian Zara from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next from it, here is Rob Watson. Up next, Rob Watson. Let's bring him up. Okay, hello everyone. Um, I'm going to start with a, it's just a short poem. Okay. Stars shine into us. The fire, nuclear, soaring solar flare in and out of itself is shimmering down here as we witness, we witness dawn. Is the spread of this firelight onto another part of this earth? Needs you, O oh great orb of divine might. You could burn us down here, or just send enough radiation to feed the flowers, and we feed on them. Thus your soul enters us, and all the animals know you, just as we do here. You are in the darkness of the morn. Illuminating the horizon is an illusion, and here we paddle here in a canoe. We are silent before your rapture. The sky is slowly glowing, the reverse of the gloaming, somehow just the same, so murky. Every day you are here, rising or falling in the dim, as we paddle, then glide away. Okay, uh, this one's called Speckled Bones, and I couldn't remember if I'd read it here or not, I may have, but I'm gonna read it again. 
Speckled bones wrapped around, hanging from my neck, is spoken. For these little deposits of calcium are magic. The voodoo is in the veins, etched upon their surface is magic. The might is in the incantations. The words hark the power of the bones, some brittle, others fierce. Here they work from year to year. I built necklaces with many animal or insect charms, hung them on me or on posts or hooks in corners. I made my own little rosaries. I erected the potent and I called freedom a great ride, but sometimes the ride ends too abruptly due to its intensity. I still say freedom, but I no longer build beauty necklaces. And maybe because my neck is no longer bound, maybe then for some reason I am less free. It is called murmuration. They are dancing before our eyes in a formation in the air, a startling murmuration, all are following, all are leading, and once a storm they swing erratic, if no crazy pressure they fly in unison, a one with broken wing in an attic, a child takes care and none the wiser, at first the secret is not even such, and then the adults discover. A stray flew into some glass, a window knocked out, a wing on the mend, they go dizzying only like a pool of locusts, though without destruction. They go drifting by and don't notice the few that streak away, the ones that have had their day. This is the last one. It's called Calling. A fjord in the soul. We dive there. A matter of cold, clean water holding spirits dance. There we go often to know each other and time's beautiful winding down, a procession into the future we go, places and persons we grow into. We know more each time we come back. We are dazzled. Each time we come back, we know more of the truth. We know more of the heavens, more of the universe calls to you and me. The universe calls to you and me through water. Rob Watson, let's give him another hand. And that was Rob Watson from, again, the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Uh, and again, held at the Elm Cafe. Up next from it, here is David Malone. Up next, David Malone. Let's bring him up. I'm going to start with a poem tonight called The Weathered Doorpost. The tree was an olive, hundreds of years old, until thousands upon thousands of jars of oil, whose every branch had just been hacked off as he stood by it. At least he'd saved it from being uprooted but not so any of the others. Nearby, the village had been raised too. Barely a wall was left. Even the tombs had been crushed. A half day's work to destroy what a thousand years had built. He was elderly, 
almost blind, and I knew him. Or rather, I knew his work, knew it by memory. Poems about this grove. With these trees we worship what flows through the earth. Poems about a son lost in a former conflict. In vain I call forth the shadow of my bones. Poems about his beloved lost in that same conflict. Waves of holy sound shape this flesh I embrace. Poems about aging alone. Over this weathered doorpost I hang my blood. I didn't approach. With him you never did. But as I looked, I asked, what does a poet need? Can one write without a home? Seeing him stand amidst all that was left of it, I thought, no. It was a desolation. The trees, the village, the living and the dead, the home, I thought, where his home said he more. And what of me? For I, too, aspired to such eminence. But his village was my village, his slaughtered grove, his shattered people. So was my gift in ruins now, too? Or maybe it wasn't like this. Maybe it was otherwise. Because as I continued to look at him, the opening lines of one of his more recent and most powerful poems came to me again. I born the wound of this exalted life. But aged now, I wish to be healed of it. And I thought that this village, this almost complete destruction, hadn't been home to him at all. But rather that other place he longed to be free of, that had been his home. The pain of living in which he made clear in the poem's anguished final lines, that forgiveness dwells beyond my reach on the farther side of the crying sun. So maybe it wasn't that my home was in ruins. It was that these ruins were my home, if I aspired to such eminence. These ruins that told of the wound that was the enduring of the exalted life. Uh, this poem is called Impotent Witness. The year of the ice storm, I lost half my limbs. For the other trees about it was the same, or worse. Many of my companions died. Under the weight of the ice, they couldn't stand and, made of much harder wood than I, they couldn't bend either. I'm thankful I survived, but my wounds have never healed. Season after season, I bleed out, bleed out at the points of tearing. And I wonder if, when people walk past, they know how exhausting the pain of these wounds is. Or when stopping under me, they consider the grief I feel and the losses I suffered from that place. My limbs touch no one now, no one of my kind. There never was another pine about nor of the young maples whose reddish leaves I loved and who, I know, struggled at first in the shade I made, which I felt badly. But what is a tree to do? We can swing our limbs and shake our crowns, but we are rooted to the spot for which we rise. We are not trees otherwise. 
But this deep-rootedness is also our weakness. Under that torrent of ice, we could do nothing. Not I, who was partially crushed by it, nor those who were wholly so. What terrible cries there were that night. What terrible thudding I can forget. I think even if I would not suffered myself, I would suffer yet for having been witness to it. Do we rise solely for this? Do we rise just to be impotent witness? Amongst us, there is this founding myth that in the withdrawing cold of that long infernal night, that first tree and first warm light yearned far too much to be itself, and so was shattered asunder. It's a myth we can't escape. Or, if there is escape, it's as I've done, bewildered, broken, and unsure now of my purpose. Am I more myself now I've been partially rent? Am I more myself knowing those maples I so loved fell not under the weight of the ice, under the weight of the limbs I once held over them in kindness. Grown to a fragile height, I know nothing now but this. The kindness can be given if you stand far off alone, and there's so much less now than you ever wished to be. Now, this last one is called Wounded Radiance. It's about my father and his, uh, his wife who's been dying for quite some time now. Wounded radiance. Organs shut down. Life goes out. There is little left now. And the mind, too, goes, but in a different way, part here, part elsewhere. To say a foot in the grave is wrong. She lies on moss-covered rock. Best yet are her ears, and the murmur of the stream eases though fear has passed. Its taste is melted snow. On the far side of it, the poet murmurs too as he walks. Songs of death, songs of her death. It's the place she occupies, its wound-like radiance from which the poems grow. Her dying gives rise to what accompanies it. Not much beyond comfort she needs now. At last, blood flows towards the opening of gold. A heart of silence speaks. The word is gratitude on snow-christened lips. Step beyond bone to the mountain's white peak. Worry not that I'll weep as rain. I must speak as I see fit. In a grave unmade, I'll set your flesh. With broken stone, I'll carve your name. Your thoughts take shape as never before. Morn and eve, I see them clear. Some I take into my hand to use as kindling for the fire. Once alight, they rise as smoke. I watch them go beyond my reach. A tear seeps out this empty palm. I don't know what it means to be. Even you seem to know when the stream flow stopped. Did you think? As did I, that snow had died? Or was it our earth bent in lament? You can see with its arms it's ready to receive. So go now, go, slip away from life. Let today be the day I mourn my wife. Organs shut down. Life goes out. 
there is little left now. Enter mine, too, leaving in the way mines do. She lies on moss-softened rock. The stream sounds, whose taste is melted snow. And the songs, whose sound she thinks is like falling snow. Falling to waiting earth, as the earth now waits for her. And as she waits, too, that she might finally fall. Like snowfalls, and like these poems fall formless from an aching height, whose wounded radiance is ever sound to my thankfulness. David Malone, let's give him another hand. And you just heard David Malone from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next, from it, here is Michelle McTagg. Up next, Michelle McTagg. Let's bring her up. every word. We are moved by what you have written, validating and becoming of a certain taste that is so different for each letter. We listen within, nature scenes passing through your lips and into the world. I'm so tempted to jump in a line that resonates within me, into which there's a lapse of devoid memories. How I met the floor and danced to the scenes, while within the realms of madness, I become accustomed to the ways of my own testimony and rhetoric. At times I am immersed in depth, which fades, but you help unlock what is there within souls and make up the masterpieces of the world. This collection is a tale of love and sadness into which we escape into, and madness is the coming of reflection. We love into the abyss of tangled feelings that speaks of our heart's intention. There is a statement that calls upon strangers to fall, always from the heart. I am so grateful to be among you, right on. Freedom, I thought away. Lost in pages, the scroll of judgment. Naked in the eye of the beholder, she falls to her knees. Taken by a blunt knife, dragging across his cheek, he becomes bare to her. In the grapevine comes a picture of a child, a shadow of creation. And through his creation I breathe. The air hangs steel yellow and stained, but even so it is a gift. Lit in flames, the blackened knees that holds the breath of life. I am tied to a line, into which her lives are hung like linen from lustful nights. I hear his voice tending to the world in my shadow, and I am broken. Blackened innocence. Counting fields picked for her death. I hit a number against her skin. And he claimed she was free. But as she prayed, she forgot the words. And when with her drew out angels from under the carpet, but I'm mistaken for dust. Laughing in stitches that burst, stained she lost her heart to the floor, and fell to servant's feet. She knelt and peered into his window. She gazed into his eyes and they were gone. Feeling sand upon the shoreline, soaking through the heaviness against her soul of a once dry and perfect imagining of eternity. And the sand is to be counted, 
and his racing footprints and figures above us that hold still amongst the stars. And the tide washes our skin with salty waves that if we drink in, we will fall together for the last time. Gazing at embers dancing against the flames of matches made, judges hammer drink from the pews where they burn. They scorch our heart, blacking with ashes we are beyond your love. Droplets fall only once, down the stems of dampened figures, fingers, gardens on his will's dispute between righteous evils fall. Captured doves, captured doves spread the night, lunges at together <coughs> the walls made from trying hands, and tune with you the ruins will ring for the love of you and I. Falling and rising, our dimly lit shadows against the walls, soul lit shifting and turning against the sets of his light stills, rising fury against the night, into which shades are judged, and our bodies are tangled. Damp scenes strung together, and seemingly tiny beams of light climb into her cage. Evil settles under eyelids of first openings, and this time it was impeccable, forcing me to read the word for the first time. So I took my book from Lecture Spoken, hidden underneath the pictures to twist the page of people I only see. And as the garbage piles and the fumes from a bleaching case me, and engines are slowing as time shift backward, and from a flash and a frozen moment, I'm still within their fire. Smoke settles in the air always for a second coming. As he breathes through his stems to grow up his thirst to grow blooming roses, the smoke within the fire, circled by a trick of light, butane smell the phantom's cologne that sparks a signal from the homeless smoke. Lovely shadows of dawn's shady break mesmerizes the riser's plea within the calms of morning's rank. Waking to twilight sliding between dreary red streaks of sky's magnetic fields, magnetic and countless comings that extinguish fixed and sporadic dreams. Still within the silence, the jury specks of rings drop as Cersei widows wait for the next falling. Clouds capture our souls and set free perfect shakes of life that fade hitting the ground, that blow holds ruins of boxes and flesh. Gnashes are swept from the tips of cigarettes, that fizzle down to the last breath, the stained black pool that whispers the past. Understanding within a moment, I capture life, life, and reason. Simplistic in nature, I am so still. As I balance darkness and light, I stand guiltless of my circumstances, and with you I unite against the trajectory of misery. From here there isn't an ending. All matter is infinite. Our souls are plumbed into the abyss, and we stumble in the waves of thought and time that rise above. Understanding within the words are shat that are shattered, in which the mind is adrift, I become lost within this collection. Although I hope to help you feel, and slip into the scenes that are swept by the winds working through hazy fields, where I stand, rising above the voices, within the madness of my mind, another turn page. Michelle McTagg, let's give her another hand. And you just heard Michelle McTagg from the, again, January 8th, and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Tell you what, uh, I've got just one quick message here. Let's do this, and I'll be right back. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, you're, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see. But a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. 
Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. And again, you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Let's go ahead and go back into that January 8th and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Again, always held at the Elm Cafe. Up next in it, here is Colleen Lyons. Up next, Colleen Lyons. Let's bring her up. I notice it's quiet, Mike. That's okay. Um, gosh. Well, this is my first time here. I moved to Kingston on January 1st. I actually moved upstairs to the apartment above this building. So um, thrilled to discover there's a coffee shop below and also thrilled to discover that it holds these poetry nights because poetry is my life. Um, so I'm going to be here a lot, but I'm going to break the ice tonight with a really crazy one. Just gonna give you the craziest, most cryptic piece that I have. <laughs> um, my style has been pretty personal over the last couple of years, and I haven't really performed for the audience, but just more for myself. So um, it makes sense if you were to read it off the paper, but not if you're just an audience hearing it for the first time. It's not gonna make sense. So let it just blast you with feeling, hopefully. It's called Fiasco. Staring down the barrel, let the rain come down and tear him up and cast me off a roll so guilty. Ah, be weak and be filthy. And I commence, we've crossed the terrace of the minuscule and scarce, breaking hearts without a nod. Here's the ceviche of the gods. And sober, we toss swords, rile up, it is ignorance. We've given enough to our scarred bodies sore. We've given a run for our separation, diligence ignored. We are one to recover a chore. It is fun, we grovel weakly, that we play a put-away game, that we echo the solid shame of our fists melted in gore. It is good, we've got nothing, just one defeat to the next, just one feast to be wed, where's the beauty and more? And I cease to impede on my meaty lone ribeye as I die inside time and time again on a die. As I cry bleakly, it's over, then I jump up and sigh into your arms like a double-ringed clover. Alive in my eyes is the side that settled down to the rhythm of anguish and murder. The colder truth is it's nothing to stop over center. You'll learn as I soften and you will grow older and I will die often and you will on smolder you'll guess and at rest you will give up and shoulder like you release your guilt and resistance oh you won't understand but you'll be glad to know her and you'll hold my hand as I command a bolder way to begin and be rich roller coaster but you'll be bewitched as I was at the entry way and the gate it's been alive for centuries 
One more day till I brave and I praise elementary ways unenslaved by my bad habits. Then see, we'll shimmy our own bodies up at the sky. Oh, tonight I looked up how to survive being buried alive. What am I supposed to do with this life inside of me? Let it out like art to dry, like summer willow leaves that pull the ardor from the sky, cascading down to sodden creeks and poison ripples of the well with rotten vines when winter sleeps? Let it out like soap to dry, like polyester summer sheets that wrinkle down from serious clouds into the knee-high grasses, keep it flattening, flattening in the wind like eggshells white and ever bleached? How am I supposed to man the ties that call so sweetly to run high and lasso them between my thighs and tightened garter of my pride? How am I supposed to careen myself into another night without the hope that I'd lose balance, fall another tightrope line, call another dog to find me, train at leash and watchful eye, cater to another echo high above the will of I? How am I greatly here to cater to an illid story? I no longer seek to know the glory of failure. Give it rise. Behind the nearly sinking weight of weary lateship in my eyes, I sear to string a merry maker into wool with spool of lie, the pearlet laciness of ornery gently etched into the side of a canister of fragrance sealed with polymer. Beside, a lampshade hides a letter holder, give it a spritz and keel to find the daylights faded on the paper, dipped in dappled sunny shine. Lions, just give her another hand. And you just heard Colleen Lyons uh, from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next from it, here and will be the final poet you'll hear this afternoon from that event. There are still a lot of them left and we'll get a few more next week. Uh, but the final one this afternoon here is Sarah Emptage. Up next, Sarah Emptage. Let's bring her up. sharing ones that are uh, specifically from it. It's called Paperscape. Uh, um, so paper is a major theme, and including uh, most of the ones that I'm going to share tonight. This is called Freestyle Origami. Freestyle Origami is an open-ended art. No one knows where it will take them from the flatland at the start. Be bold and fold and fold again. It's a story untold till you tell it, and then it will always be creased in the page. Make menageries and mountains, orange foxes, purple cranes, and glaciers out of the blue. Make worlds take their shape without scissors or tape, just with patience and paper and you. 
I work in uh, libraries and kind of worked in records or archiving types of stuff. Um, that's you know, partly where I got the concept of this is called uh, archaeology and archives. Archaeologists unearth the past while archivists lay down the day in a conversation built to last the test of time and slow decay. In ages old, the pages fold and wait to be peeled back, revealing long-forgotten gold of a different time and track. Waking up the mysteries, laying down the clues, dusting off the libraries that were bound and shelved brand new. Alexandrian cartography, papyrus pictographs, the archivist records a joke and the digger-upper laughs. So when I shelve the records of this present day and age, I wonder who I'm talking to through the ever-living page. Um, and this one is called uh, Paper Duels. Paper dolls duel, not with swords, but with letter openers and staple guns, for injustice that just can't be ignored among flat flippant fellows too noble to run. The seconds arrange for the terms and the time, and the proud paper gentry strut, strut forth to their place, ready to punish or pay for their crimes, while I stand meekly by with the tape, just in case. And uh, one last one is called Night in the Library. Uh, at the time of writing this, I wasn't yet working in um, an actual like library where normal people came to. So I was thinking of it more as a, a patron of libraries. And so with that in mind, I, I do not, uh, I definitely do not recommend the actions suggested in this, uh, in this poem. And uh, it's not, not something I, I, I could actively encourage given my, my role of working at libraries. I would, I would actually readily discourage it. But it was a fun idea at the time. Um, a friend of mine and I were imagining it. And uh, yeah, we'll go with that. What would happen if we happen to remain, when the regular frequenters make a train for the door, when the shadows lengthen long among the chatter and the throng at the circulation desk? Beep, the beep, beep, and all the rest. When everything's checked out and powered down, if we were stealthy and we strayed to a corner and we stayed out of, uh, to a corner and we stayed out of sight to remain in the silence of the books, overlooked in the shelter of the shelves, mischievous and as merry as the elves. And if we stashed a pack of snacks and things to bring along for the lingering, dried fruit, check, beef jerky, check, flashlights and batteries, check, and check. What then in the den of the lions and their letters, once we're locked in the paper dragon's lair? Shall we feast on the pages like the bookworms that we are, making castles with the shelves and comfy chairs? Would they find us in the morning in a large print paper nest, open volumes for our pillows like a couple armadillos, sleeping snugly on an open treasure chest. That was Sarah Antage. Let's give her another hand. And you just heard Sarah Antage uh, from... The January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. 
And as I already mentioned, although it seems like there's a lot of time left in this hour, uh, a number of the uh, the uh, readings that evening were long enough that I was afraid I wasn't going to get another one in today. So I've only prepared these and... Uh, also a bit purposely, too, because there are a number, I can't remember, something like eight events coming up in the next week or so. Or I should say eight or so events coming up in the next week. And so I wanted to give everything a bit of a shout out and wanted to allow ample time to do that. I know like something like, and I do have a number of recorded uh, things I need to air at the end of the hour. So this gives me maybe about 10 minutes and it seems like a long time. But when you're sitting here talking, it goes by pretty quickly. So what I want to do first is in case I haven't done it already. uh, uh, Well, I should say, too, I should mention that uh, the this open mic uh, that we came into today for the first time, uh, all the way back from January 8th. Uh, There are still about 15 or so readings. I did kind of mention that. I didn't have the exact number. 15 or so readings from that event to air. And we'll work them in into, I don't think I can, I know I won't get them all in next week's show, but uh, next week and the week after, I think I am planning on also airing another book launch Uh, That was recorded in January, I believe, as well. Uh, But uh, I want to uh, get that. Could have been February. Anyway, there'll be another book launch list next week and aired here. And also more of these open mic readings. And uh, so I guess I want to thank you for tuning in today. You have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And again, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. And we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. I do try to work this in before I uh, get into the events because I'm not looking at the clock. And the next thing I know, I look up and there isn't time to do it. So I do also, before I get into the events, just remind you that each hour of the show... Each week, uh, this show will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. And uh, you can find it at finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And it will remain there for four years as well. This show is also a podcast. So if you go to the Facebook page for uh, find, uh, for actually for go to the uh, website for. Uh, the radio station, again, same, www.cfrc.ca. Uh, you'll get information on how to access the podcast. So let's go ahead and just jump into, I think I've got the right page here. Yep. Let's go ahead and jump into uh, a number of events coming up. Uh, beginning uh, tomorrow, uh, there will be a Kingston Arts Council is offering a grant writing workshop featuring Norma Garcia. Uh, It says here, Norma is an an arts administrator, grants consultant, and independent filmmaker. And uh, the goal, I'm not going to read the full blurb for these because there won't be time, but it says to, uh, if you want to come, to learn how to improve your grant applications in this three-hour interactive grant writing workshop. 
And uh, that will be happening tomorrow, Saturday, March 2nd, from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Tet Center in the rehearsal hall there. Tet Center is located at 370 King Street West in Kingston. If you want more information, uh, www.art. ArtsKingston.ca, and if and then you can just uh, slash KAC dash events, and then again slash should take you right to the page. Then, because you've been hearing from it, uh, the next in the end, the journey continues. Open mic reading series uh, will be held on Tuesday, March fifth, and again at the Elm Cafe. Uh, the series is the first Tuesday night of the month event. Doors open at 6.30, and uh, readings start shortly after 7 o'clock. The event runs until 9.30. The Elm Cafe is located at 303 Montreal Street, which is right on the corner of Montreal and and, uh, Charles. And uh, the Kingston, another event here, Kingston Frontenac Public Library is uh, hosting the latest in there. This is a... a live series. In fact, they call it KFPL Live, and it's their monthly speaker series. This uh, month, uh, they have uh, a s- titled uh, Breathing Rooms, Indoor Plants for Well-Being, and uh, Allison Shannon from Sun Harvest Greenhouses in Glen Burnie will uh, talk about uh, how to make the inside of your house a little more spring-like when it's obviously not spring-like outside. So that's going to also happen Tuesday, March 5th at 7 p.m. Going to be held at the Kingston Frontenac Public Library at the Isabel Turner Branch. And uh, that's located out by the Cataraqui Center. I'm sorry, I don't have the address here. Apparently, I did not type that in. So anyway... uh, you can look it up. Just go to www.kfpl.ca, and uh, you can find it in events as well there. And then also, not here in Kingston, but not that far away, in Tweed. It's their first uh, Tuesday night of the month poetry series. It's coming up March 5th. And uh, it's called The First Tuesday Muse. This happens at the Tweedsmere Tavern in Tweed. And the event runs from 7 to 9 o'clock at night. So, And then we also have another event coming up the night after. It's checking time here. It looks like we're okay. Uh, Ultraviolet Magazine is having an open mic night. Uh, and it's called an open mic and poetry night. It's free. And uh, it says, come out for an evening of spoken word, vocal performances, and acoustic sets. Uh, And uh, if you're interested in performing, you should uh, shoot them a message or email, it says. And uh, it says they will also have a running sign-up list the night of the event. Ultraviolet is a 22-year-old magazine uh, devoted to creative arts, prose, poetry, and art, photography, graphics, music, etc., And, uh, again, this is going to happen Wednesday, March 6th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Union Gallery, which is on the first floor of the Stauffer Library, right here at Queen's University. Uh, Their website, www.ultraviolettemag.com. And, uh, yeah, 
I'd check that out first. It also has their email address there, I'm sure, if you want to contact them. Then on Thursday, these are all happening night after night here, which is kind of typical once we get into the busier times of the year. We have a bookstore reading uh, going to happen Thursday, March 7th at 7 p.m., and it's in celebration of International Women's Day. Uh, The title of it is Mysterious, Magical, Murderous, Mystical. And in it, four Anana authors uh, read in celebration, again, of International Women's Day. They are Lisa D. Nicolaitis. I'm sure I stumbled over that, and I'm sorry. Uh, Mary Lou Dickinson, Elizabeth Green, and Ursula Flug. And they will read from novels that range from murders in distant lands, murder in downtown Toronto church to healing and beyond. And uh, also one post-apocalyptic gathering on Mount Shasta in California. Again, that is going to be held at Novel Idea Bookstore, located 156 Princess Street, and Thursday, March 7th at 7 p.m. And let's see... I think I pretty much made it through all of next week's uh, list. Well, that's pretty cool. And uh, might I do have about a minute and a half or so. I'm going to go back to uh, calls for submissions and see if we've got something else coming up fairly quickly. Pardon me while I kind of page backwards here. I think might have mentioned but i didn't go into the detail i did with the others but freelit magazine is uh, has a call deadline of march 13th uh, so it's outside of this upcoming two weeks or upcoming week and uh, they are bi-monthly online journal they're looking for submissions of poetry short stories essays and other prose photography and visual art each issue is thematic but encourages a loose interpretation of theme uh, Jenny, uh, the call is out now for the next issue, and the theme for the March issue is law, and it does have a March 13th deadline. So from for submission guidelines, uh, updates, access to past editions, announcements, and other info, please check out their website, and it is www.freelitmagazine, all one word, dot com. And with that, I do want to thank you for tuning in to the show today. Again, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name is Bruce. I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I hope you can stay tuned. Uh, Coming up uh, right after this show uh, is a, are, I guess I should say, two hours of East Coast music in a show called Saltwater Music, and that is hosted by Rob Carnell. Again, that will happen right after some recorded messages that I do need to get to the air because I didn't really play any throughout the show other than the one. So I want to. So anyway, I hope you can stay tuned for two hours of East Coast music uh, in a show called I don't know if I mentioned it, Saltwater Music, hosted by Rob Carnell. Again, that will happen right after these messages, and I want to say thanks again for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show. 
And I hope uh, you have a, a wonderful weekend and then week ahead. And hopefully this weather we had today is somewhat indicative of a change in the weather. So, again, thanks. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.